0: pastor jenna had a long history with holy family lutheran church she served as associate for the past five years before that she'd done her internship there she'd weathered a lot especially the firing of the previous associate pastor over financial improprieties however none of those previous difficulties compared to the one that came her supervisor pastor mike died of a sudden heart attack. Now, Pastor Jenna wasn't much of a hugger. She liked having that three-foot box around her, kind of like me now that I think about it. I'm not much of a hugger either, although I will. Um, She could hug, but it wasn't her favorite thing to do. Except that after Pastor Mike died, she found that she really needed the hugs, this was to the amusement and bemusement amusement of some of her colleagues, some of whom never gotten a hug from her before. One of them half jokingly said, I thought you didn't like hugs. She said, seriously, I need this right now. Another pastor piped up, yeah, don't poke the bear. Each of us has a tender spot. Each of us has a tender spot. There's something in us that we all hold sacrosanct. We won't tolerate criticism of it or teasing about it. For those in Jesus' hometown, it's their assertion that even though they're at the bottom of the ladder in the Jewish world, Galileans tended to were were seen as just a step above Samaritans in those days. And being from Nazareth, a nowhere village, well you can just imagine. Even though they were at the bottom of the ladder in the Jewish world, they were at least above the Gentiles. They may not be like those fancy people in Jerusalem, but they know that at least they're part of God's chosen. And then the hometown boy returns and promptly starts poking the bear. Starts pressing on that sensitive spot. At first, things seem to be going well for Jesus. He's been a regular wunderkind. Preaching, teaching, healing, doing all sorts of amazing things throughout Galilee. So news has spread. You can bet when he comes back home, that synagogue is packed. Now, I remember what it was like for me when I preached my first time back home. The folks were respectful. They were even proud of me. But... At the same time, these were the people who had me in Sunday school. They'd known me since 5th grade. They know me and they know my family. In fact, the last time I preached at my home congregation, I came in about 15 minutes to 10. Church started at 10, and one of the long time one of the one of the ladies said, "Yeah, yep." Yeah, You're a fleener, always running late. They have pretty set ideas about who I am and what I'm like. So that had to be the same thing that happened with Jesus. So they knew who he was. They knew who he was when he came back. They knew who his family was. They probably heard the stories about Jesus' questionable parentage. And yet they've heard great things. He's doing amazing things, unbelievable things. So they're there in the synagogue that day, waiting to hear what he has to say. Jesus takes the scroll with Isaiah 61 and reads it. You've got to know, if you're in the, that day where literacy is not really a thing, especially among a, 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 someone from Nazareth, that would be a remarkable thing in and of itself. Jesus taking the scroll and reading it, being able to read. And then Jesus says something extraordinary, something that must have just caused everyone's everyone's minds to just blow. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a thing to say. That means liberation. That means that the hated Roman yoke can finally be thrown off. You can hear the excited whispers. And then Jesus stuns the room. What Jesus says next turns the congregation from deifying to murderous. Jesus knows what they really want. They want him to do the same things in Nazareth that he's done elsewhere in Galilee. They want to see miracles, signs, and wonders. He's from there, after all. Everyone knows that when the hometown boy makes good, the hometown boy is supposed to give back in some special way to the hometown, right? It's kind of quid pro quo. They raised him, after all. But Jesus isn't going to play that game. In fact, Jesus reminds them of an inconvenient truth. He de-centers the Nazarene's special sense of identity. There were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, Jesus reminds them. But Elijah was only sent to a Gentile woman in Sidon. There were many people afflicted with leprosy in Israel in Elisha's day, Jesus says. But only Naaman from the hated Assyrians was healed. Throughout the Bible, Jesus continually de-centers our expectations by going off our script. Gentiles in those cases were healed, not Israelites. Throughout Israel's story, there are always key Gentile characters here and there who remind the hearer that the story of salvation is always bigger than Israel itself. It's always bigger than the insiders want to make it. Way back in Genesis, going going back, here are just some of the names. Melchizedek, Jethro, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Cyrus, and of course the unnamed widow and Naaman remind us that God's purposes are bigger than any of us can comprehend. All those human-made hierarchies and statuses that we perpetuate, they're destined to fall into dust like every human structure ever made. In God's realm, not only are all welcomed, the most unlikely people have an important part to play. That's poking the bear. We shouldn't be surprised that the denizens of Nazareth are so offended Jesus tells them straight out that they aren't going to get special treatment just because he's from there. Perhaps the message, that's the message for us today. For us Lutherans, for us Christians, even, dare I say, for us Americans. Let's not expect special treatment from Jesus because we acknowledge him as Lord. As necessary and as important as that is for us to do. And if that's true, we certainly shouldn't expect special treatment from Jesus just because our nation is at the top of the hierarchy of world powers. If anything, we should expect a decentering of ourselves, a dethroning of our own pride, so that Jesus can be further enthroned in our hearts and that's painful that's painful but it's also the best good news we could ever get the pain doesn't last forever because when we surrender any privilege or power or at least not hold it quite as tightly we will find that It's part of the process. That surrendering is part of the process of being made holy. It's one of the fruits of being saved from sin, death, and the devil. Being made holy. Being saved begins here at that baptismal font. There, the old ego, the old sinful self that insists on enthroning itself and one's tribe over anything else, is dethroned and drowned, killed. And don't... And, and uh, I'm going to say something that sounds a little shocking to the parents. In a very real sense, we kill people here. We kill people at this spot. Why? So they can rise up again and be new people, made in the image of Christ. That's what happens here. They rise up every day, as Luther says, to be God's person. To love and serve God all the days of their lives. That's going, that will happen to Arthur Kevin here in a few minutes. That journey begins for him today. As it once began for all of you. The sinful self drowns and continues to do so every day through repentance. But the new self rises and continues to do so every day. We have been saved. And all of our lives we'll find that Jesus continues to challenge those unearned senses of privilege and superiority just as he did at Nazareth. When ourselves, our sinful selves, our egos are dethroned, Christ is enthroned. God, make it so for Arthur and for all of us every day of our lives. Amen.